evening, everyone. You know, it's a cold, frigid evening out there. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, there I know we're thawing out. You know, you can tell with a little feedback. What a great evening, and I want to welcome everyone to the Rothko Chapel. We only have uh, two, two, I guess if these would be kind of Benedictine, Franciscan, I got to be careful on orders here, rules, is we would ask if you would uh, silence your cell phones. That'd be great to sort of keep our holy space holy, and then that way something doesn't interrupt a really profound thought. And our second is if you would refrain from picture taking. Now we are uh, taking pictures, we're videotaping, this will all be on the Rothko Chapel website, so if you want to relive those moments, you'll be able to do it. But if you do that, that would be great. Um, the other thing I'd like to do is invite you to a reception after tonight's program. We'll be on the plaza, so it's a great opportunity to meet new people and to continue the conversation. We'll remind you again, but all are welcome. Um, the other thing I'd like to do before we get to the program tonight is some, some thanks. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank our board of directors for the work that they do every day to help steward the Rothko Chapel, our mission in this community. I also want to thank our program committee. They work very hard to make this happen. And I want to uh, lift up two people. Uh, Joyce Sauhut is down on chairs, our program committee. And Ashley Clemmer is our program uh, director in the very back. Can we give them all a big round of applause? And we really, really thank you for your hard work and uh, helping to make this happen. A little bit about the concept of the Divine Series. It's a series we launched this fall to allow us to probe more deeply into how our individual and collective understandings of and engagement with the divine in its many forms impacts our notion of the sacred and how it impacts our deepest life commitments. <coughs> Key questions that we put together to help undergird this series, series include, what is your understanding of the divine and how has that changed in your lifetime? Assumption made, it's not static, but a dynamic conversation that happens over decades. And another one, what impact has your engagement with the divine had on your vocational commitments and views about your place in the cosmos? The series began with a very enlivened conversation with noted University of Houston professor Brene Brown who came to the chapel in September and spoke on the topic certainty, vulnerability, and the gift of mystery. Following our conversation this evening, the series will continue on February 21st with an evening of poetry and a conversation with poets Willis Barnstone and his children, Aliki and Tony Barnstone. Uh, you may know the name Barnstones, very, very uh, well-known name in Houston. And uh, Willis's brother, Howard Barnstone, was one of the architects that helped design and uh, the Rothko Chapel. And then on May 25th, we'll conclude this year of a two, the two-year series with um, Asma Uddin, who is with the Center on Islam and Religious Freedom, who will share feminist perspectives in Islam on the concept of the divine. So as you can see, it's a very diverse group of people, which is really what we wanted, different voices and different perspectives, to understand something that has different perspectives and a lot of possibilities. Now, a little bit about tonight's program, uh, which we've titled Social Justice, Social Change in the Presence of the Divine. And uh, you'll learn a little bit more about that in your program as well as detailed bios about our speakers. But I want to just say on behalf of the chapel how privileged we are 
to have with us in this space tonight three, now you're going to have to watch this carefully, three leading Houston clergy, two who happen to be here physically and one who is here in spirit. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But um, these, these gentlemen have made clear that interfaith relations has both a personal as well as a transformative community power. And you'll hear a lot about this night tonight. As they have worked for decades, some might say in the humanistic, but I'll also add the very sacred causes of justice, peace, and social equity. You see, for decades, Rabbi Sam Karf, who's a rabbi emeritus at Congregation Beth Israel, Archbishop Joseph Fiorenza, the Archbishop Emeritus of the Catholic Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, and the Reverend William Lawson, founding pastor emeritus of Wheeler Avenue Baptist Church, have led and participated in multi-sector efforts to address critical community issues such as homelessness and the need for affordable housing, the promotion of community policing, addressing the school to prison pipeline, and working together on many ways that keep people from being incarcerated in the first place. They are leaders in this community on racial justice and economic equality fronts and have spent decades promoting interfaith and intercultural relations. They understand well the importance of both contemplation and action and the importance of showing up, of being present and being in this sense, Houston's community ministers and rabbi. We are so blessed to have you here tonight. Now, two of these leaders will share their faith and their stories together with us and enter into conversation. Unfortunately, Reverend Lawson could not be here this evening for health reasons, but we're really fortunate to have his daughter, Melanie Lawson, here tonight um, as our moderator, which is what we ask you to do, but if you have room for a little channeling of your father, that could be really great. But uh, in her own right, as you well know, from her work in this city, all the things that she's done with Channel 13 and a lot of, a lot of her work, on the, again, on the social justice, community building fronts, she too is a force to be reckoned with and is somebody whose faith and service are intrinsically linked and related. So I will just say, we are honored to have you, I think in most cases, back here in the chapel. We're honored on a personal note, I just wanna say it's great to kind of renew friendships again. It was many years ago, we worked together on, on real important issues when I was here. So with no more words for me, thank you for being here. Enjoy this evening's program. Help us welcome our guest, will you? Thank you very much to David. We really appreciate that. And uh, he's right. My father is not able to be here tonight. He is absolutely heartbroken about it. He has broken his hip and is in rehab. He's doing great, I'm happy to say. Um, but uh, unfortunately, the doctors would not allow him to take a field trip. So he was not able to be here tonight. So I don't know if I'm going to channel him. As I've been telling these gentlemen, they know I'm a very poor representation of the third amigo. But I am very, very happy to be here tonight. And for me, at least, this is a homecoming. I know that I've been to the Rothko Chapel many times, starting from the time that I was a little girl and it was first opened. So I'm delighted to be back here. Um, but I will talk a little bit about um, 
the issues that we are going to be discussing tonight. I'll do that in a moment, but first I want to allow these two handsome gentlemen, uh, my surrogate fathers as I like to think of them, uh, to begin. They're each going to have a bit of a statement, then I'll pick up from there and start with a few questions. So do you want to uh, arm wrestle for it, or who would you like to go first? We've resolved that. You've resolved that, all right. <laughs> of course you have, which must mean the Archbishop is going first, is that it? <laughs> All right, Archbishop. I'm the youngest of the amigos. Oh, okay. That explains it. Well, thank you very much, <laughs> Melanie, and thank the Board of Directors of Rothfield Chapel for having us here this evening. Uh, we are delighted to be here, and truly, uh, we are enormously d diminished and not having our third amigo with us. In fact, we feel sort of incomplete with, without Reverend Lawson. But we have not only one who is uh, very equal to replacing him, but in many ways she is prettier, and, <laughs> and we're delightful to have her as one of our amigas. I'm sort of a half amiga, but thank yeah, you. Well, yeah, there you, go, there you go. well, the three of us, from three different faith traditions, three different ethnic groups, have been working together for some time because of our strong, very shared faith in the one God. And it is that belief and acknowledgement of the divine which certainly has motivated us to work on behalf of the human needs of our community. So we're very privileged to be here tonight to say a little bit about our, our, our division about serving the human needs of all of God's creation. And our, our friendship is really firmly based upon that biblical understanding of God's creation. The biblical understanding of the one true God, which is revealed in the sacred scriptures and which is made so clear from the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and God's theology of creation. The, the, the book of Genesis teaches us how in the process of creation, everything that God created was said to be very good. And the pinnacle of creation and the order of being was the human person. When he created, created the human person and ins inscribed into the human person his own divine image. And it's that divine image of God that we see in the human person. And the reason why that we work together from three different faith traditions, but in this shared belief and the, and the theology that comes to us from creation. So the, the very pinnacle of God's work with creation is the human person. And because God inscribed into the human person his own divine image, anything that we do to help each human person to be truly human to be able to fulfill his or her human potential, we believe is reflecting our love and our belief 
and the one true God. The biblical teaching of creation affirms that all that God created was truly good and has and, and his work of creation has destined that the, the needs of the human person are the ways in which we can truly show our belief and our service of God himself. The dignity that God conferred in the human person is something that really predates all of human society. And because it predates human society, we believe that society it reaches its best when we do what we can to serve the basic needs of the human person. And reflecting upon this biblical anthropology of the human person, we believe that the, the common good that God has placed in his work of creation should be accessed by every human person. Those common goods which help make us truly human, the ability to have food, clean water, education, decent housing, these good health care, these and other goods are comprise part of the common good. And it is our biblical vision that when we work to try to help the human person access the common good and become truly human, then we are reflecting our true belief in the divine. That is our vision. That is what motivates us. That's what brings these three faith traditions together to work on behalf of the community. And this is what has, uh, has uh, for, helped us to form this mutual friendship and this collaboration. Although we have our own different theologies, we are truly bonded together by that one theology that the true God, the God of the Bible, has, has created the human person to be able to have access to what his or her humanity requires to be a truly fulfilled person. So this began years ago when we began to work uh, on the homeless problem here in the, in the city of Houston. And actually even before that, some time before that, when we began to be concerned about the lack of proper housing for, for so many of our fellow citizens. There was an effort back in the, uh, in the 80s to try to reserve Allen Parkway Village as a place for housing for the, for the, for, for the, uh, for the poor. Uh, there was that one effort to try to tear down Allen Parkway Village. And we were able to come together to try to convince the city and the county that at least some part of that village should be preserved and remodeled and made habitable. And that, that family won the day and some new housing was, was also built. But it was important that those people who live near 
where their work is to be able to have decent housing. And that led us to begin to collaborate on the homeless problem, which was so very, very serious uh, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and it's still a very serious problem today. But it, it truly brought us together to help the, the community reflect upon this serious social disease to have so many of our brothers and sisters living on the streets and not having access to basic human needs. That, uh, we think, was um, partially successful in the fact that many different uh, communities, uh, different synagogues and churches throughout the city began to take homeliness as a, as a, as a true need for them to reflect their belief and their, their belief in God and, and their need to serve the fellow human beings. That eventually led to the Coalition for the Homeless, for SEARCH, these two institutions which are now trying to serve the basic needs of the homeless people in our community. And from that we began to, to, uh, to, to try to concentrate upon a reform of the criminal justice system, and particularly particularly to do what we could to try to prevent juveniles from being incarcerated as adults. Juveniles who would be guilty of nonviolent crimes, but uh, things of marijuana and some other petty thefts, to have them be uh, considered as, as truly as young people and not have them go into the jail system where they can truly become, truly criminalized in so many ways. So our effort is trying to raise the age from 17 to 18. We're trying to work with the Texas legislature to, to make that a reality. And this is this part of the, what keeps us trying to uh, come stale as we retired clergy persons. And, and to, to reflect just more briefly before I turn it over to, to Rabbi Sam, who speaks some more eloquently than I can about these, all these issues. But it has come to our attention through the illness of uh, Reverend Lawson's wife and Melanie's mother of the need to have a more integrated and comprehensive care for elderly people. We are very proud of the Texas Medical Center. But when one of the things that is lacking in the medical center is a specialty hospital for, for elderly people, a geriatric hospital. So we know that most family physicians treat elderly people, and I'm sure they do a fairly good job. But it is brought to our attention through experts in geriatrics that uh, what is truly needed is a more integral and comprehensive approach to caring for the elderly. And we're hoping that uh, we will be able to um, bring about that reality in the medical center. We have specialties in the medical center for children, for cancer persons, for heart people, and other different medical needs, but there's nothing specific for geriatrics. 
So we hope that we've talked to the mayor, we have him on our side, some of our coalition was meeting with the governor this past week, and um, we hope that uh, we will be able to uh, bring about a, a, uh, an attention on the need to have a geriatric hospital also in our great medical center. So uh, the, Basically, though, what moves us and motivates us is this vision that we have of the divine. The divine who has in, inscribed into each human person his own divine image. And when we try to serve and meet the human needs of our brothers and sisters, we truly believe we're serving the divine who desired and creating us that we be truly and fully human. So I'm going to turn it over to All right. Sam. I was going to say, turn it on over to the rabbi. Well, thank you. Um, it's always a pleasure to, to be in the company of, of the Archbishop and also in the company of Reverend Lawson's, I won't say most charming daughter. I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, one of three charming daughters. Uh, I have three daughters, too. Uh, being in this Good evening, first of all. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, being in this special place reminds me of the life and influence of Dominique de Menil, uh, certainly a remarkable woman who was the inspiration for, for, this, for this chapel. Uh, and programs such as this tonight certainly reflect her spirit and her legacy. Tonight's program is about a, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi who like hanging out together, and this is not the beginning of a joke. <laughs> I share Archbishop's regret that our third amigo, or first amigo, um, Reverend Lawson is unable to be here, but I know you join me in the prayer for his speedy and, and full recovery. This friendship of ours is not only one of the blessings of my personal life, it is also a testament to the greatness of America. Our nation doesn't always get everything right. We have our brokenness. We have darkness in our history. But we also have a way of striving to correct the brokenness. I think that's part of American exceptionalism. And that's certainly true of the struggle for civil rights, and it's also true of the progress in interfaith relations in our country, which no one should take for granted. When I was a Jewish kid growing up in Philadelphia in the 1940s, there were neighborhoods in the city where Jews couldn't buy a home, even if they could afford to. Jewish attorneys were not welcome in the large established law firms. Jewish doctors did not have privileges in certain hospitals. And in those days, it was not unusual for a Jewish kid at one time or another to be called a Christ killer. It would be unheard of for a Christian friend to attend my bar mitzvah service in the synagogue or for me to attend a religious ceremony for a Catholic friend at Holy Name Cathedral, which was our neighborhood Catholic church. Each other's religious edifices 
were out of bounds. Jews were admitted to many colleges only on a very limited quota system. In 1949, I discovered later on that I had entered Harvard under a strict 6% Jewish quota. During my college years there, which I cherish, I would pass Memorial Church almost every day because it was in Harvard Yard, but I would never think of going inside. It was alien territory. But so much has changed in interfaith relations. A small personal example, in 1986 when Harvard celebrated the 350th anniversary of its founding, I then a rabbi and an alumnus was invited to be one of the speakers at the celebration. And I was asked to speak from the altar of Memorial Church. <laughs> I finally got inside uh, and, and it felt good. So much has changed here in Houston. And my friendship with Art, the Archbishop and with Pastor Lawson is an eloquent reflection of that change. The Archbishop has noted that our friendship goes back at least to the time some 30 years ago when we took leadership roles in the campaign for the homeless. And it's continued ever since. As friends, we care for each other and want to be there for each other in time of need. 25 years ago, my home was struck by lightning and burned to the ground. The next day, I received a call at my temple study from Reverend Lawson. Somehow, in this fourth largest city of the country, he'd, he'd heard about it. He comforted me and he pledged his church to help me replace the books I lost in the fire. I was moved to tears by, by that offer, but I told him that we would be in temporary housing for months and I would get back to him. The fire was in January. We got renested in our home by April and then shortly be after we moved in, which was just before Passover, a woman rang our doorbell. She had a basket of kosher for Passover foods. And she said this was a gift from Reverend Lawson's Wheeler Avenue Baptist Church. And there was a note. And the note wished us a blessed Passover. It reminded us that his people's struggle for freedom was inspired by the biblical story of the ancient Hebrews, slaves in Egypt, and God's liberation, which we were celebrating at this Passover season. Nobody can be more eloquent than Reverend Lawson. And he concluded the note by saying, and this is being sent to you by an angry black pastor who is still waiting to hear from you about your books. <laughs> I responded with apologies and heartfelt thanks, and I suggested that Reverend Lawson and his church replace the most important book that was lost in the fire. It happened to be a, a, a collection of uh, rabbinic stories based on biblical texts. And he made a presentation at a special ceremony at Sabbath Eve service. 
When Reverend Lawson lost his wife, Audrey, Archbishop Fiorenza and I were among the mourners in his church and at home. And when I lost my wife, the two of them sat in our home with me and my daughters and led us in prayer. The three of us, as the Archbishop has noted, live in quite different religious stories. But we share what I would regard as one overarching and primary religious story, and it is this. God loves us, and we best respond to God's love by our love for all God's children, especially the most vulnerable among them. And that is what we have been attempting to do in a small way, especially more recently in our old age and retirement. The Archbishop has mentioned several of our projects. Let me simply mention one additional one, and then I will conclude. I want to speak briefly about what has been called the pipeline from school to prison. The public school system in our community and many others has a policy of zero tolerance for any breaches in discipline. First offense, detention. Second offense, suspension. Third offense, you're transferred to an alternate school which is closely connected to the criminal justice system. And that's how so many at-risk children end up from school to prison with their lives destroyed in most cases. Many of these at-risk children are part of the so-called underclass. They tend to live in a neighborhood with very challenging external conditions. And unless there is at least one parent in the home who is a combination of unconditional love and tough love, I love you, I believe in you, I root for you, but because I love you, I will set boundaries and hold you accountable. Unless there is such a parent in the home, such children are very high risk for being caught up in that pipeline. Mindful of this, the three amigos asked for an appointment with the CEO and the president of the Greater Houston Partnership. This is an organization of business and civic leaders and one of their missions is to help keep Houston on the forefront of the global economy. We reminded them that unless we reverse this pipeline from school to prison, we will be creating in Houston an ever larger intergenerational underclass, alienated from the criminal justice system, alienated from society, and not prepared fulfill any constructive role in a high-tech economy. That's not right. It's a violation of our American dream and of the ideal of social mobility, and it's not good for our city. Fortunately, these leaders of the partnership readily agreed, and they led us to a meeting with one of who was also a member of the partnership, but she's the CEO, a lovely woman, Anna Babin, the CEO of United Way. And she had heard of a judge in Atlanta who was 
disgusted about this pipeline, and he devised a system of one-on-one -on -one mentoring, kind of surrogate parenting for these at-risk children. And the results were really very significant in terms of retention in school and graduation from high school and going beyond. The United Way sponsored a meeting of educational leaders in Houston, brought the judge here from Atlanta to tell the story, and the three amigos spoke at that meeting as well. And this in turn led to a pilot program with at-risk children in the Spring Branch School District. They picked 11 very at-risk children from that district, and all 11 were mentored by adult members of St. Luke's and St. Martin's churches. All are now back in school, headed for graduation. That program is now being expanded under the leadership of a local organization called Revision. The program is now in 16 schools. It involves, at the moment, 80 of these adolescent children who are being mentored one-on-one -on -one by representatives of various church communi faith communities, Jewish, Christian, and even Muslim. For many of these children, adolescents, it's their first experience of an adult who is both truly caring and truly responsible. So, we have been blessed to discover the three clergy of diverse faith, but one overarching faith who have become amigos can open doors and help in our little way to advance the cause of criminal justice. And I should say at the same time, give a bunch of old men a continuing sense of being needed and useful. That's our story. Thanks for listening to it. At this point, I should really say good night, Houston, since they pretty much answered uh, all of the questions and talked about uh, the real concept that we are here to discuss tonight. But let me start by saying here that the three amigos really are the very embodiment of a shared concept of the divine. You certainly heard that. Not just in theory, but in practice. They definitely don't just talk the talk of what God or the divine may be uh, and what that God expects from us, but they also walk the walk every single day. I always find it funny when the three of them get together. You know, most retired guys get together. They talk about golf game or they talk about the grandkids. These guys sit down and say, what are we going to do about that geriatrics hospital? You know, they're just a barrel of laughs sometimes. <laughs> but, but the important point is that they are always thinking ahead in terms of what is going to be best for our community, for our citizens, for the least among us uh, every single day. And I can testify to that personally. Um, what is, I think, in some ways most interesting is how they arrive at some of these things. One of the issues they did not bring up here here, but I certainly want to talk about, is their uh, decision that the city, the community, needed a public defender's office. We've mm -hmm. never had
had anything like this. And uh, we were one of the few major cities in the country without a public defender's office to defend many of the indigent defendants that were out there who really needed that kind of legal aid. And the three of them showed up at county, uh, at, right, at county commissioner's court. And that's a foreboding face if you want to deal with the three of them. So it's always interesting to see how, as a group, they got together. As I mentioned, my father is not here tonight. Uh, he is heartbroken about that, certainly sends his apologies and wishes he could be here. But I did ask him about a few of the discussions that I thought we would have tonight, a few of the issues. Um, I asked him about how they all met, and he gave me a slightly different version. He says he's known the Archbishop since the 60s when he was a young priest here in Houston, and at the time very involved in the civil rights movement, not just in Houston, but nationally. And uh, he he would come to many of the meetings where he would be one of the few whites in the room talking about civil rights here in Houston. He also marched across the Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama with Martin Luther King, just to give you a sense of how, how broadly involved he was. And Daddy said he often, yes. things Daddy said was he frankly feared sometimes uh, for the Archbishop's safety, but also that his path to Bishop would be harmed by what he called his radical actions. As you can see, things worked out okay for him in the end. <laughs> Rabbi Karf came into the picture later, as he said, uh, but he was also involved in civil rights in Chicago. So when he came to uh, Houston in the 80s as rabbi of one of the largest and most prestigious synagogues here, he sought out like-minded people and he found at least a couple of them that he could hang out with. So theirs is a friendship that goes back some time. So I want to start by asking the two of you from your own perspective how you remember forming this sort of holy alliance. They're called the Three Amigos. They're also sometimes called the Trinity, but they think that's a little, <laughs> just a little blasphemous, so we'll keep that to ourselves. But let's start with that. Can either of you kind of remember how you found each other in this big world? Well, as you indicated just now, it was mostly from civil rights things, issues. Um, then a thing, in more recent times, it really became more solidified uh, when your father asked the two of us to come to a meeting of the uh, Black Ministerial Alliance because they were having difficulty in convincing the county, the largest county in this country without a public defender. So poor people, when they get in difficulties, uh, they would just be assigned an attorney right. by judges and things like that. I, and there were there, there's some problems about that. It wasn't best. There was no one that was there was no office that was specifically set up to to be an advocate for 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 the, for the for the poor. And so uh, we went to the the meeting, and the county judge was there, and uh, and I think when the, the well. Uh, I don't want to overstate this, but I think that uh, when he saw that this was not just something that was concerned with black ministers, but others in the community also were concerned about it. And that led to the establishment mm -hmm. of a public defender's office here, which we now have, very active and working. Uh, we still believe it should be more heavily subsidized, and, but we, we've made a very good beginning. Yeah. And, and having that. Actually, that, that, 
it was interesting, the, before the public defender office, the judge who tried the case, if it were to go into trial, appointed the, the, the attorney, assigned him, which means that the attorney could be dismissed at the behest of the judge and could not be reappointed if the, if the judge decided he didn't want him, which means that the attorney was really more beholden to the judge than to his client. And understandably, most judges want to clear their docket. So they would signal to the attorney, get your client to plea bargain rather than to go into trial, which means that someone who may not, may be totally innocent is being urged by his attorney that it's in his best interest to plea bargain and that's how you get a lot of in incarceration. Uh, now, the, the, the judge, I think, acknowledged in an article that was written about uh, some years ago that he was influenced by, by our appeal for it. Uh, if we convict him of unsuspected virtue, uh, it, it, it didn't hurt that there were, we brought a few white faces of white clergy uh, to, that, to that meeting. So the, the judge saw that this was not something of just concern to the black community. It was of concern to, to a, a large number of people in this community. And at last count, the public defender office has a staff of 50 in, 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 in Houston and is a very going concern and has a wonderful one public defender at the, at, the, at the head of it. Rabbi, do you remember how you became uh, acquainted with and connected to your two amigos? You know, I'm embarrassed to say <laughs> that I can't give, the, the closest thing I remember is that we were, we were aligned in, I came later to, mm -hmm. to Houston. I came in 1975 to Houston, uh, mm -hmm. so I was a latecomer. Um, but I, the thing I remember most vividly was that we were um, asked to take leadership roles in the United Way's homeless campaign. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we spent a night on the streets um, in January, and it was a cold night, uh, just to walk around the bridges and, and see how people actually live in our community. And it was too cold to stay out there all night, so we did what some of them did. Uh, we went to the Star of Hope mission. Uh, they were all out of bed, so I found myself sleeping on a carpeted uh, chapel area at the, at the Star of Hope mission. The difference is that in the morning we went back to our warm homes and took a shower, and uh, uh, it was a limited experience. But not, not without value. It gave us some sense of what this is. And of course, it's a complicated issue. There are mental problems. There's need for re-education and psychological training, psychological support, and so forth. And, uh, and as the Archbishop said, that gave, our efforts gave birth to the program search uh, homeless center uh, here in Houston, which does a lot of fine work and has actually been successful in reaching people and turning around lives. Uh, 
Uh, in fact, when they dedicated their new building a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I think it is now, um, we were asked to bless the building. And uh, we heard testimonials from persons who had been on the streets and were now living uh, productive lives in homes of their, of their own. So it's a good feeling. And I do remember that one of the things you did was you uh, encouraged uh, churches, synagogues, mosques all over the city to raise money Doesn't for homelessness. It was the first time we had seen this enormous effort uh, by the religious community to raise money for one issue. And in this case, it was homelessness and, and uh, raised a substantial amount of money. Uh, one of the other things that I asked Eddie about that really, of course, relates to tonight is about uh, religious teachings, your concept of the divine, and how they inform the issues that you all choose. And he said that at least among the three of you, and perhaps it's a common language, that you rarely talk about things from a theological or religious point of view, that that's just kind of accepted among the three of you but that you realized at some point, and perhaps it was the public defender's office, that there was a kind of chemistry among the three of you that not only meant you saw among yourselves how critical it was for you to take leads on important social issues, but that people would take you seriously as a group when they might not take you so seriously as, uh, as one by one, that uh, you were sort of, uh, the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, it, it, I, I, your father has said that to me, and, and actually, I myself am mystified as to how we have open doors, <laughs> uh, which, uh, and I really believe he's right. If one of us had gone by ourselves, we would not have opened that door. But the, the mystique of the, th the three <laughs> amigos, the th different faiths uh, coming together uh, gave some additional weight and uh, apparently success to, uh, to our, to our efforts. We didn't spend, we have spent next to no time in Jewish-Christian dialogue. Uh, you know, we, we have been focused on what our common faith in a God who loves his children, the children of God, and, is, and, and that love is best returned by what we do for the most vulnerable among them. It's what our religious faith motivates us to do together. I think ultimately our society is better served. And religious dialogue is fine, understanding the beliefs and, the, and how they differ and so forth. But when push comes to shove, um, it's what our faith leads us to do jointly, bringing the weight of our joint efforts to bear on a problem of deep moral spiritual concern in our society. Uh, and it, it's that, that's been our, our major focus, and I think it's the most fruitful focus. Uh, much, I'm not opposed to interfaith dialogue, but it's what we do to address these moral issues in our society. And, and we're not politicians. We, uh, we have our political preferences, but when we approach anybody in a position of power, or 
has the capacity to help change things for the better, uh, we do so as uh, religious people and emphasizing the demands of our faith rather than an adherence to any political party. Archbishop, do you think that gives you a freedom, perhaps, that a lot of other people wouldn't have? Uh, well, let me say, first of all, uh, we know from history that when we begin to speak about our own theologies, mm -hmm. that's what causes a lot of division. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's caused a lot of trouble in the yeah. past. Different theologies. But we have a basic understanding of God that arises from the gospel, from the from the from the scripture itself, from the Bible. And it, it is that theology, biblical theology, which we share together, not our different faith traditions. We're proud of our own faith traditions, but we know that beyond our own faith traditions, there is this fundamental rock belief in the one God who is all in all, and who is the one who keeps all things together when we are trying to serve his greatest part of creation, the, the needs of the human person. So that's what I think is what really keeps us moving together. But do you think there's a certain freedom in the fact that you don't have to answer to anybody except the divine? <laughs> uh, so that when you go before, uh, whether it's county commissioner's court or, or going down to speak to somebody with the Greater Houston Partnership, you bring a, a, a certain kind of, um, freedom is the only word I can think of that perhaps someone else might not have. You're not beholden to anybody except perhaps each other and the issue. And reflect what we believe is the desire that God has mm -hmm. for the welfare of the human person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, as, as we talk about this concept of the divine and how it has shaped your life, and I think both of you did a great job sort of explaining that to us uh, and, and your calling, how, how has it affected which issues you take on? I mean, as you look out around you, there are many, many ills out there, we could say, uh, in society. But how does it affect what you decide to do as you think about the divine and your calling to help your man, your fellow man? Well, in, such, in many ways, it's the vision. The, your father is a visionary. He'd probably say all three of you are. <laughs> yeah. He, but he, in many times, he can help us to put our our collective efforts on a particular issue which he has seen in a far better perspective than we have. And so that helps us to know where we're gonna put the focus of our effort. So, uh, you know, uh, in the past, there uh, been community issues like homelessness, the lack of proper housing, those are things I think we've all seen together. Yes. And we've seen in our, in, our, in our experience with this community and with, we know the needs of this community. Those things we can see together. But there's been some specific instances when it's been your father who's been able to lead us and direct us to the things that we should help I think that's I think that's true, Melanie. Uh, in fact, I can think of the instances we've been talking about. It was your father who called the Archbishop and me 
and said, well, he said to me, I assume he said something similar to you, Joe. Um, he said, look, I know you're retired. I'm retired. Joe's retired. But I need you. And then he told us that, do you know that Houston, Harris County is the largest county in the country, the largest county in the country that does not have a public defender office. Even Dallas has a public defender office. Uh, uh, and he said, I have invited the county judge to come a few times, and he has, and he's spoken nicely, but there has not, nothing has happened. I want him to see that this is of concern to more than just a bunch of black ministerial faces uh, confronting him. Uh, I want you to come to the next ministerial meeting. I've invited him and he's accepted. And I, I want you to speak on behalf of the Public Defender Office and I want you to bring some white establishment ministers with you. <laughs> and, and we did. And now we've got a Public Defender Office. <laughs> So that certainly uh, gives me at least some insight into how you choose the issues and, and the like. Um, but while you referred to this just a moment ago, Archbishop, you said you don't really sit down and talk about you know baptism versus Catholic, Catholicism or Judaism. Uh, is there ever a time when it's difficult to align your beliefs? Uh, do you ever find that you perhaps may bump up against some kind of obstacle because perhaps you don't feel uh, that it is in line with Judaism or my dad doesn't feel as though it works for Baptists? Have you ever run into something like that? Well, actually, I can think of, a, of an instance where um, I wasn't on the same page yet. Uh, with, uh, with, the, with the Archbishop. Uh, the Archbishop was going to meet with the editorial board of uh, the Houston Chronicle, and he wanted me to come along with him uh, to, to talk about the efforts to um, put a, a hold on all um, uh, uh, capital punishment, actually implementing the capital capital punishment law uh, until we did a better job of uh, seeing that it was not, there were more than a few persons who it turns out were innocent and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and were put to death. Um, at that time, I don't know if the Archbishop will remember this, but I recall I felt that there were still some crimes so egregious that the person forfeited their right to be part of the, the human community. On the other hand, I was very troubled by the, the actual implementation of, of, of the law and the fact that it's not difficult if you have inadequate representation um, to be uh, convicted and, and be on death row. Uh, and so I went down with him and I supported the, 
the halt to all uh, implementation of, of, of the capital punishment until such time as we had a bona fide, made a bona fide effort to build in more safeguards. Uh, so it turns out that we weren't exactly on the same page, but we were able to support the same, the same cessation of, of implementation. Uh, I've since come closer and closer to his position. Yeah. Archbishop, can you remember a time when you weren't perfectly aligned on something? Um, no, I can't. Uh, <laughs> I think because, uh, uh, well, we still have a, lot, a long ways to go on the capital punishment issue. <laughs> we still haven't fully uh, uh, overcome that issue yet. But no, I think uh, because the issues are all uh, directed towards meeting fundamental human needs, which goes across all religions and all ethnicities and all status, uh, stages of society. These human needs are common to all. And God and his wonderful act of creation, everything that he created said, and this was, he, it says it was good. So there is a common good that I believe that we all subscribe to and that uh, anything that can help the least among us to have access to the common good that God has provided for humanity, that is where we believe God wants us to be. Okay. And so that, I, and those are the issues I think that uh, I have uh, believed that really brings us together, and I haven't seen any hesitation about that. I understood you know, Sam's little hesitation about that. There were some uh, question that is always a difficulty when there is anytime I read about these terrible most egregious crimes that are horrible you know I have to tell myself still still you can't take another life that's not going to justify it. so I, I, I admit to have that little hesitation but my commitment to abolishing capital punishment still is very very strong well, as we talk about the concept of the divine, I want to ask you about sort of both ends of an issue. First of all, how you decided to go into uh, in, in, to become a, a priest first and a rabbi, how you made that decision that you were going to devote your life to God and to service. And then at the other end, has your concept of God changed over the years as you have grown deeper in your faith? Well, I didn't decide to enter seminary until my second year of college. I guess until I had dismissed all the other alternatives. <laughs> uh, but uh, the truth is that um, I grew up in a very Jewish home and uh, imbibed in a, a love of Judaism. Uh, from my parents, um, and I felt a religious experience of the presence of God as way back as I can remember. The problem is uh, the God that 
I started with and stayed with for too long was a God who somehow was more interested in me and in my welfare than in, every, in anybody else's. Um, it took me a while to understand that the real God is as concerned about the other, at least as concerned about the other as about, yeah. as about me. Um, but as I came to realize not only that I had this, these religious feelings and this love of Judaism, but I love to do the things that a rabbi was actually paid to do. Uh, in fact, I'd sometimes, I've had some, some times in my 40 years as a congregational rabbi when I wondered what kind of a job is this for a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> but only, a, no, overwhelmingly, I have had the notion, for this you were created, that this was what I was intended to do. Uh, I love to teach, I, I love to counsel, and the sense of helping a person struggle with the quest for meaning in life when they're experiencing a crisis of meaning uh, because of what life has dealt them. Uh, I don't think there's anything more, more valuable or meaningful than that, and uh, it's such a privilege. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful. Archbishop? Yeah, well, um, when I graduated from high school and it became evident that I was not going to win a football scholarship to Notre Dame, <laughs> I decided to go, Still go to the games. <laughs> No, I, by the time I was finishing school, I kept believing in my heart that God was calling me to, to serve him in the priesthood. And um, at that time, of course, uh, I just had the, a teenager's understanding of God and appreciation of God. And having gone through theological studies and being a priest for now over 62 years, uh, my knowledge of God continues to grow. Uh, it's not my appreciation of who God is and what God, what God is for me. It's not steady, it grows. Uh, each day, a priest uh, is asked to pray the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms, and in the course of a month, uh, we pray the 150 psalms, at least most of them, in that, each month. And each time I pray those psalms each day, which is such a rich, rich theology of who God is as Father, as love, as a provider. I, then I, I, each day I, I get to more and more uh, appreciation of the wonderful, magnificent, provident God is for me. And I think my, my uh, knowledge of God and as revealed to us in, this, in the Bible, it continues to increase and grow each day. And I have to say that uh, when I asked my father about this, 
he was interested in being a commercial artist or a cartoonist <laughs> as a teenager. Um, of course, he said back during those years, he didn't see Walt Disney calling him up and offering him a job. But more importantly, he felt as though he literally had one of those lightning strikes that God said, you know, you are the one that I am choosing for this job. And much to his reluctance at the time, uh, he accepted that calling. But uh, over the years, obviously, he has felt like you have, that that was truly what he was meant to be. Uh, we are talking, obviously, mostly about the divine, the concept of the divine and how it affects your work in social justice. But I would be remiss if I didn't go back and talk to you a bit about the civil rights movement, because all three of you were involved in some fairly critical ways. And even at a time fairly early on when uh, many clergy chose not to get involved in that movement, especially white clergy, because uh, it just at that time did not seem to be uh, the easiest route to take, certainly not the, uh, the most popular route. But I've got to ask you both, and Archbishop, you were on that bridge, on that Pettus Bridge in Selma for Bloody Sunday, um, which means your commitment was beyond what was probably even rational at the time. But why did you decide it was so important for you to be involved in the civil rights movement and, uh, and to be there for such a momentous occasion? What do you remember about that? Well, I, I remember very clearly being there in Selma at that time and being in Brown's chapel there when Martin Luther King was speaking. And uh, it was, you know, it was, the tension was, was truly fierce. Uh, and it was at that moment, too, that we received word, President, President Johnson at that time, uh, gave the federal order to allow the march to go on. And uh, I, I remember so very much the, the great joy and elation that there was. But at the same time, there was filled with all of this tension about the, uh, the, the hatred that we saw in the Alabama police that was trying to keep everything in order, I, I, that uh, was a result of something that I felt in my heart as a young person, that, uh, that the way in which we were treating African Americans was simply just not right. I had that feeling deep uh, growing up. And, uh, and uh, from uh, my earliest years in the priesthood, uh, I, I felt that uh, uh, whatever I would be able to do to try to uh, overcome racial prejudice and racial hatred and bring about a greater understanding of my races, I felt that's something that I, I would, would be a, an important part of my service as a priest. So I had that feeling from the very beginning and, and uh, when the civil rights things were forming here in the Houston, I, I was uh, happy to, to, uh, to be a, a part of it, mostly uh, an observer. I didn't get that actively involved too much locally, but I remember uh, those students at TSU when that shooting up there, those are the things that tell me, you know, really, this is something important. You, we've got to get more involved than what we're doing. So I was happy to be together with uh, two other priests uh, who 
both became bishops, Bishop McCarthy and Bishop Rizzato, to go to Selma and to, to show that uh, we believe that the, at that moment it was the right, the, 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 the right to vote is something that was just critically important for the nation and that for us not to, to be a part of that would be sort of uh, being negligent of what we felt uh, was our responsibility. And you weren't ever fearful either for your own physical being or your career? Uh, no, no, I really wasn't. No, no, I was... Uh, uh, you felt the tension, yes. yes. But, you know, we, uh, but I didn't feel... Uh, well, we felt tension, but I don't think... I, I didn't feel fear that I would be physically assaulted or anything yeah. Uh, Rabbi, I know that when you were in Chicago, you were involved with the civil rights movement there and even uh, went to a meeting with Martin Luther King when he came to town to, to speak about some of the things he was doing. Uh, same question to you. Why would you have taken on um, that cause uh, when I'm sure there were those around you who said, listen, don't get involved with that? Well, I was in Chicago in the 1960s um, and I was the vice chairman of the, what was called the Conference on Religion and Race. The Episcopal Bishop was the, was, the, was the chairman. And our goal was to try to bring legislation in certain areas, fair employment, um, mortgage lending, and all the issues mm -hmm. that, uh, that were bubbling to the surface, uh, and to try to Sometimes our members of our congregation were not that comfortable with some of the things that uh, I was involved in, but um, I felt that I, I didn't feel there was any uh, choice but to uh, embrace them. Uh, one of the most poignant uh, experiences of my life was that under the auspices of the Conference on Religion and Race, we were summoned to a summit meeting. Martin Luther King brought his marches to Chicago. It was all right when they were, they were down in... Down south. Down yeah. south. <laughs> but he brought them to Chicago uh, for open housing. Mm -hmm. it, it was a, a, a very tough nut to crack, and it was an... It was an example of also how, um, how complex these issues, some of them, are. Uh, he had planned a march in an all-white area, Cicero, um, with um, lower middle class uh, whites um, who had lived in these little bungalows who were themselves marginal in the economic system and who felt threatened by their, the, the integrity of their neighborhoods, that they couldn't afford to send their children to, to private schools and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, some of my members lived along the lakefront in these high-rises were very liberal about these issues, but were sending their kids to private schools. Um, and 
you know, one of the things that I've been able to do throughout my life, just because I, f I feel that way, is to try to understand where the other person is coming from. Mm -hmm. And not simply to demonize them, but to recognize their pain as well. And of course, if we're going to have progress in the, in the meaningful way, it has to be as much as possible a win-win situation where the needs of, various, of the various entities are understood and appreciated. Well, anyway, um, this march could have actually, Martin Luther King was assassinated a few years later, just a few years later than this meeting took place. It was um, at the Palmer House in Chicago, convened by the mayor, and it was an attempt to get Martin Luther King to call off the march in Cicero. Uh, his assassination would have probably taken place if, if that march had taken place. But he, he, was, he was willing to, to call it off uh, if the mayor was willing to agree to certain things. And as we sat around that table, Incidentally, I saw a play here in Houston of, of, about Martin Luther King, and he was smoking uh, in, in the play. I'd never seen him smoke in that room at this Palmer house. He was smoking. <laughs> uh, I, obviously, it was a very tense, tense meeting, and you knew you were in the, in the midst of greatness. Yeah. I mean, this, this was really an extraordinary man. Uh, and. He agreed, there was a memorandum that the mayor promised to do certain things. Um, the the now whether he gave it in a real effort, the, the bottom line is that the, the conditions that Martin Luther King had exacted from him were not, were not fulfilled. And it was not until years later after his assassination that that legislation um, was implemented. I'm going to uh, pause here, and I know there are probably some questions in the room, and I do want to give you a few minutes to do that. Uh, it is always such a privilege to get to sit and talk to them, and uh, so I could hog the whole evening, but I'd like to give, turn it over to a few of you. I believe we have a couple of people with microphones there in the back. I believe there's Kelly there. Uh, anybody with questions? And I'm going to do my best. The only thing I would ask is that they be questions and that they be brief enough so that we can answer them. Yes, ma'am. We have somebody there about halfway down. Ms. Kelly. Thank you. I'm just uh, very uh, interested in the comment on like-minded people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's so important to find other people that can help with social justice and can help uh, do what uh, the idea that, that people should be expressing love and helping other people, but it's often very difficult to do. It's, I would think even, even within the ministries, there, there's so much diversity of opinion in what constitutes uh, love and how, 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 uh, you know, how, how to find that like-mindedness with the other um, ministers in town, uh, rabbis, priests, uh, how we are to do it as, as people, it's often hard to find others to work with 
to move things forward. So is the question how to find uh, other people who perhaps yes, and, are thinking and, of this? Yes, and the other, the other part of que that question would be basically, why is that so? When it's pretty fundamental, uh, love and taking care of your fellow man should be primary, and yet we have such so many people who go to church and who don't believe that. Okay. Gentlemen? I'm getting very old. I can't in here very well what either. She, what she asked was, how do you find like-minded people, and certainly uh, people who are concerned about issues of social justice? You all were fortunate enough to kind of run across each other, but uh, certainly in this day and time, how do uh, not just ministers or clergy, but how do people of like minds find each other? It's a big yeah. question. It's a big question. Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, from our perspective, uh, clergy persons, uh, our responsibility is to preach the good word. And in preaching the good word, uh, we hope that uh, people will respond to it and will be willing to join with us and others who share the same beliefs and vision that we have to help us to help make right the different things that are so wrong about our society and our problem. The fact that we have so many human problems here in our community is quite evident. And although uh, we would like to have far many more people get involved in trying to resolve these human issues, we know that it's always gonna be a tough sale, but as long as we do our best to present it from the perspective that this is what we believe God is calling us to do, and God is calling all of us to do, that we will be able to gather together at least a strong force of people who are gonna be willing to challenge the, the status quo and to help bring about a greater change so life for all of our citizens can be far more decent, far more human, far more reflective of what God intends for all of his children. Well, and especially when you're talking about younger people, how do you do that? You guys are in your 80s, you've certainly lived a long, full, rich life, but how do you pass on that message to younger people? And then I'm gonna also look for another question out here. You know, I wish I, I had a magic answer. I, I don't. Um, I think the only thing you can do is to, again, try to put yourself in the position of the person you're trying to recruit uh, or trying try to influence and understand where they're coming from. Take seriously their reservations and 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 counter them as 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 best you can. Um, where you know a lot of these issues have complexities connected with them, uh, and the ideal way I am beginning to repeat myself, which is a function of age and also a function <laughs> of being around too, so long. Um, is the recognition of trying to move toward a, a, a position 
that respects the legitimate concerns of the other person as well as the agenda that you're trying to pursue and trying to bring them together. Um, also, moral issues are more easily advanced if you can legitimately appeal to the enlightened self-interest of the other person. Um, you know, take, take the issue of the underclass and helping avoid that pipeline to prison. Um, it's not good for any of us to live in a community where a growing segment of the community feels alienated from the society, uh, has no stake in the society, no stake in defending what is important in, in, in the society because they, they feel the society is in no way uh, understanding of their plight and in no way seeking to, to alleviate it. Um, we have a stake in addressing social problems that are outside of our neighborhoods because no one is insulated. Uh, they have, those problems have a way of impinging on our lives. Uh, it is in our enlightened self-interest to be concerned not just about our own well-being, but about the, the concerns and the aspirations and the frustrations of those around us. Excellent uh, point. Let's see if there is another question out here. Yes, yes sir. Thank you for all that you've given to the community. Um, my imagination is working overtime, but I'm wondering if you have considered or would consider a Three Amigos training program, mentorship <laughs> for other people in the community um, at a younger age, where you bring them together in conversation and help them just to create a common vision together and share your wisdom and the things that you've accomplished. And I don't know, maybe that's a way to pass it on. Um, but, and maybe that's just one no, citizen asking another citizen no, to, to take us, to take us forward. That's a great question. Would you all consider? Yeah. <laughs> Would you all consider three Amigo classes? <laughs> well, you know, um, it was, about, was it about two years ago, Sam, that we went to Kincaid School? You did. All, yeah, all of us went. You're right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, uh, the feedback that we received from the students there, they said that was the best assembly they've ever attended. <laughs> but we were preaching the good word. We were preaching what we were trying to say up here, you know, that that we, we, we have to have that love and respect for one another, particularly for the other, as Rabbi Sam was just saying, that the other is God's child too. And what we desire and love for ourselves, we have to desire and love for the other too, even though those, they do not share our, our faith, they do not share our, 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 our politics, they do not share where we live, but still, they are our brothers and sisters in the human family, and their welfare has to be our concern. 
that message, I think, resonates with young people yeah, if we make it. Right. it. Yeah. I think you're right, and it really was a great assembly. I can take one last question. I'm a little hard to see, but yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. I'm not a native Houstonian. Yes. My name is Ronnie. Hi, Ronnie. I'm not a native Houstonian, but uh, it's a real thrill for me to sit at the feet of these elders, seraphim, and uh, to hear from them and learn from them. Uh, I'm from Liberty, Texas, and I've seen Reverend Lawson on television, out there on the streets for years. Uh, I used to wake up on Sunday mornings and I would hear uh, Rabbi Karf uh, on, on Coda 99.1, and uh, it would just soothe me to hear his voice about uh, a little before seven in the morning before I'd get up and go to church. And then I've been fortunate to be uh, confirmed into the Catholic Church and to come to know and to know of our beloved Archbishop over here. And uh, now I'd just like to ask a question. Uh, in a time when our society and our world is becoming less and less uh, religious in uh, the uh, roles of mainline churches are in decline and fewer and fewer voices are able to hear uh, the relig religious message that I know has informed my life and uh, motivated me to service and good works. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is for, for when fewer people are going to be uh, taught and informed with religious ideas and tradition to good work, uh, how do we? What do we do to to uh, reach out and and inspire uh, that into non-religious people? Wow, another big question. How do you reach out and inspire non-religious people as well as religious people? I think that there have been predictions made over in the modern era that religion was on its way out. Comte was one of the first uh, thinkers of the modern era to say we're going to reach a stage where uh, we'll have a different kind of thinking and the religion is on its way out. I myself feel that certain churches and certain religious groups may wax in their influence and wane um, and many need to grow and adjust and respond honestly to new conditions in society. Um, but I feel that uh, as long as we are human and we are meaning-seeking creatures, religion will remain for a significant number of persons the deemed the most the deepest and the most adequate response to both the grandeur and the pathos of the human condition. Um, 
That's my belief. That's a big answer to a big question. That's fantastic. Archbishop? Well, non-religious people also have a basic human goodness to them. And that is my experience, you know, that even though they do not profess a particular religious belief, nor participate in religious services, but they have a, a basic human decency. And I believe that uh, it is our responsibility from the religious point of view to be able to get in touch with that and to help non-religious persons to understand that their basic human goodness is a reflection of the truth, the truth. And it is the truth about how each human person reflects the divine. And I think if we continue to approach it in that avenue, we can help those non-religious persons who understand that what they experience in their good, basic human goodness is really, in a sense, a reflection of the divine that they do not personally recognize, but that divine person is there for them. And I think that, that it is uh, That's a very important eventually uh, that would help those who are not religiously inclined to understand that the goodness that they desire and live is truly a reflection of the goodness that God has implanted into their hearts. Amen. Yeah, that's a wonderful, wonderful Amen. way. But it, that one question I was going to ask was whether spiritual counted as much as religious, but you just answered it. Absolutely. That is the answer. I, I want to thank the both of them so much. Thank you. about the divine, these two gentlemen exemplify it in every word they speak, in every breath they take. We are so grateful for them. And uh, I'm a little biased, but I'm grateful for the third amigo as well. David? And tell your daddy how much we miss him. I will. Yes. I will make sure I do. I, hey, this may be Howard Jefferson calling. He's probably calling to see what's oh, going on. Oh, yeah. On. Tell uh, Howard I'll let hello. Him know. That's tell another, Howard hello. That's another set of three amigos. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the only issue I want to take tonight is, I think it was Rabbi Carve said, he said, we're not politicians. I think we got a great one-on-one on advocacy tonight. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you may not be professional, but when I came here in 1993 and that phone would ring from any one of the three, <laughs> it was a political call. <laughs> in the best sense of the word, because it was about calling you to action. Right. right. And uh, I was thinking about that uh, school, this kind of school, and I think, you know, finding like-minded people, I mean, I don't know very many people in here, but I feel like we're in a room of like-minded people. Um, the other thing I think the blessing tonight is the fact that in a world that is, uh, and I think this is a religious insight you get, can be so divided. This is nothing new. I mean, this is something we see generation after generation. What a blessing it is to have the people that can take the base of their being but also transcend that in being in company of others. And to remind us again that the sum of the parts are in fact more powerful than the individual part. 
And you also, in a little way in that dialogue on the death penalty, modeled that differences do not have to be destructive. And for that, I think we need that at a time more than ever looking into this new year, another time again. So thank you for that. I want to go a little off script. We got a full house tonight. I told you we were being recorded, so you can cover your face as you want. But here's what I want to do off script. You ready? Repeat after me. Reverend Lawson. Reverend Lawson. Get well soon. Get well soon. All right, so that's great. We'll get past that love on. And I want to welcome you again to keep the conversation going tonight. It's a bit chilly, but with a lot of warmth. The plaza is open for you all to spend some time in company with each other. Uh, and the last thing I would ask, we've got a full house, so for the sake of these wonderful paintings, if you don't mind exiting from the center aisles, that'll help us get everybody out safely, and then we'll uh, be able to gather at the, uh, uh, on the plaza tonight. I'm just now yep. seeing him, but the pastor of Wheeler Avenue Baptist Church uh, is here tonight, uh, the Reverend Marcus D. Cosby. Hey. I did not see him until now. Welcome. Good job, okay? All right. Thank you all for coming. Go in peace. Many blessings during this holiday season and all the best in the new year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, that was great.